Welcome to Unapologetically Successful. Today we have with us Clark Bertram, who has an incredible story. Not only are we speaking here with the Batman, uh, and also that is one part of your life, but there is so much more of you. Thank you so much. That's so sweet of you. I appreciate it. I can see you've got the bookshelf behind you too. Bookshelf, got my little poster over here, One Life, I'm, got my Wheaties, got a mask from a movie I was in. There's all sorts of stuff in here. I have to say this, like, I actually am pinching myself. Why is that? <laughs> I have been at a very young age, lucky, and been privileged to meet contrast of people. But I also had the contrast of having been in a communist country and then truly weeks later, sitting at the residence in Germany with the prime minister. And it's like, how does one become that? And I always looked at what makes people become who they are. You are currently running a very successful business. You also have dedicated your life to support specifically men in becoming healthier and actually, I guess, more successful and happier in their lives because that's so much connected with what you do. Thank you. I'm as honored as you are to be here in this moment. And I want to give you the best that I can. So I'm excited to jump in. There were a few moments in your life that really propelled you in a new direction that probably was not what you were thinking you were going to do. I'll let you now to introduce yourself and also if we can go through your childhood through the moments and then we'll just explore what comes up. I'll hold the space here. Susanna, thank you. And yes, my name is Clark Bartram. I live in Southern California. I'm married for 34 years, two kids. My daughter Taylor is 31. My son Mitch is 27. My wife Anita is, like I said, I won't say her age because that wouldn't be appropriate. We've been together for all of this time. And I, that is my biggest accomplishment, in all honesty, the fact that I've been able to sustain a marriage and raise two amazing humans. I'm such a fan of my children, and I always tell them, you're amazing human beings for what you contribute to the world. And I love watching and witnessing them in what they do. But other than that, like you said, I do coach men over 50 because, as stated, I'm a man over 50, and I think I'm a good representation of what is possible if men focus on themselves, because it's my belief that men spend so much time and women do as well, but it's a different kind of situation where men end up finding themselves at the age of 50, 55, 60, and then suddenly realize, hey, I'm not the college athlete that I once was. I'm not this stud. I'm now a fat guy who's lacking confidence. Maybe I've achieved a lot of success, but I'm just not happy in my body. So with that, I was a Marine, so just working my way back. And as you stated, as a young man, I didn't ever think that I would be on a podcast called Unapologetically Success. Successful. So it, it just, it's amazing how life just moves along. And if you're, I like to be circumspective, have your head on a swivel, right? You have to be able to be aware or like athletes say your your head you're constantly looking your head's on a swivel so if you're that person and you understand the opportunities that surround you and you choose the best one for you based upon the next level of your life you end up where you end up and i'm happy where i ended up so amazing a few points there why only men and also a lot of people ask you a question do you coach celebrities because of who you are and, and you're probably a little bit tired of that question. 
Not at all. It's a great question. It makes sense. I don't coach celebrities because, one, I'm not in the space to be there. I don't live in L.A., so it's not convenient for them. But I honestly care more about the guy who feels like giving up. Celebrities can get trainers all day long. Yeah. But that's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for the guy that's laying on the couch right now feeling, oh, my God, is there anyone out there that can help me? Who is a guy around my age that is honest and trustworthy and is not going to take my money, is not some 26-year-old kid that here I am. I'm that guy. Some kid not have the privilege of walking through as many years on this planet as you and I have. So they can't really speak to some of the things that we understand in a way that they'll never understand until they fast forward 20, 30 years, however long it is till they get become my age. But with regard to women, I'm going to give you an answer that most people are going to be shocked at. It just doesn't, it's not safe. If I'm intimate, like having conversations with women in situations like that, there's boundaries that can easily be crossed. Look, I'm a man and, and I'm attracted to women, not just my wife only. There are other beautiful women on the planet. And if I'm spending that sort of time digging into details that I need to dig into to get someone through the next level and to the fitness goal, then you're bordering on some things that could be potentially dangerous. So I'm trying to be smart. I know me. Like, I'm going to avoid that. See, this is where you are not the 18-year-old. <laughs> that is yeah. profound, actually. It's honest, right? And most people say, I want to target a demographic. Certainly, I want to target a demographic. Yeah. I want an avatar. I want to know who my ideal client is, as we refer to it in marketing. I just, but I know my ideal client it wouldn't be you. As, as much as I would love to help and as much as I think and know I can help anybody, like I'm wise enough to go, yeah, no, I refer you to somebody that I know can help you. But I love that honesty. That's so beautiful. I watched some of your videos, you coaching men, and I love how you have close personal relationship with them and you hold them accountable. So with respect to my relationship with the men that I coach, one of my guys the other day said something that really impacted me in a very deep way. He shot a video and said, where can you find a fitness coach that tells you he loves you and you know that he's telling you the truth? When I heard a guy say that, it really just hit me because I do love my guys. I absolutely love the men that I coach because I realized the trust that goes into choosing somebody, especially after you've been through life and you've been taken advantage of and you know who's con artist and who's trying to just get money, right? That's not what I do. I would give this away if it was possible. It just doesn't make sense. You know? Can you take us from your childhood where someone said that you had the potential to become and really focus on your body and fitness? Yes. When I was probably around 14 years old, I noticed my predisposition to have muscles. So genetically, I had potential to be a muscular guy. Matter of fact, my quadriceps were overdeveloped for the growth platelets in my knees. So the option for me at that time in the 70s was to be immobilized, two casts in a wheelchair for the summer or stop playing sports. And much to my father's chagrin, I'm like, man, I'm going to quit playing sports because I couldn't imagine sitting for three months in a wheelchair at the age of 13, 14 years old when my buddies were out playing. So anyway, my bicep always looked like that. I always had this peaky bicep. And one day I flexed in front of my friends and they all made fun of me. And 
I was thinking I was deformed. There was a problem. I didn't know. Like, I didn't know this was not normal for a little kid to have. And, Every man's dream. <laughs> it was just there. So I ran home crying. And I remember I, I don't know what to do. Ended up in the YMCA. <laughs> this man told me, what do I do? He said, Clark, you have the potential to be a champion bodybuilder someday. My exposure to bodybuilding back then was wide world of sports, the world's strongest man, stuff like that. So I was like, wow, this is cool. And, but in, I never thought I would end up doing it. I just started lifting weights in that YMCA. And then I joined the Marine Corps, which is a very physical thing. And then from there, I played rugby in the Marine Corps. So my body's developing this whole time. But this man got me on the path because he took the time just to talk to me for five minutes in a YMCA in downtown Canton, Ohio. And it completely altered the course of my life because I still talk about that man today. He's made such an impact. And when I find myself talking to young kids in the gym, in the back of my mind in the files is Henry McGee who inspired me. Matter of fact, it just happened the other day in the gym. I saw two young kids, 18 years old. I just started encouraging them. Hey man, stick with this. What do you want to do? How do you want to get there? Stay away from steroids, all this sort of stuff. Which is exactly what actually our purpose and the intention of the work that we're doing is that it's so important what we say and how we interact. So you train, was there ever a dream that you would actually end up being the devoted sports person that you are today? Not specifically, but on some level I knew because I was always an athletic guy. So athletics were always a part of my life and being physical, even to this day, I was training if you see my instagram you'll see this crazy training i was doing with two buddies in the gym today because i just love that challenge i love someone saying try this and i try it so that was the marine corps for me so on some level i knew being a physical guy was going to be part of my life but i didn't know how specific it would be i didn't know i would be coaching men over 50 i'm clark bartram i'm the guy like trying to put myself in that position of when you think of coaching men over 50 you think of Clark Bartram. That is my goal for my business, my brand right now is the go-to guy 100%. And I feel like I'm pretty much there. I can't think of any other guy that really has reached this level, a few. But anyway, I knew, here's what I did know. I knew I wasn't cut out for working in the factories in the town that I grew up in because it was steel mills there and Republic Steel, Timken Roller Bearing, and appreciate the blue collar workers, those men and women who worked in those factories for 30, 40 years. That's their career. But I just knew it wasn't for me. And I knew I needed a way out. I wasn't going to go to college. So that's when a Marine Corps recruiter walked into our lunchroom and dressed blues. And I'm like, wow, look at that guy. Look at that uniform. That's what I want to do. And at the age of 17, I went down and signed up. And that was that. By that stage, you were still living at home with your mom, is that? Yes. Do you, do you want to go a little bit into that? Because there was also a moment in your life when, if I read that correctly, when something also shifted in your mind when your sister moved out, stepsister. Yeah. So my mom, single mom, raising four children, two of which, like you said, were from a different father. And I have a younger brother from the same father. But I remember one day, matter of fact, my older brother from a different father reminded me of this just the other day when we were talking on the phone. He said, one time you and Michelle, my older sister, 
were having an argument. I was a young kid and I can't ever remember arguing with her, but he remembers it specifically. And it was because I said, you're not my real sister. And my mom jumped in and said, don't you ever speak that way. You guys are family and we are so tight. And I love my brothers and sisters so much. And my older brother called me the other day. He goes, you don't even, I'm about to cry. He goes, you don't even know how much I love you. And it was from the trauma. It was from all of the trauma that we experienced as kids, seeing so much violence and being abused and all of what we went through. And one by one, we like, you escaped, right? You escaped. We escaped one by one. My sister left first. And then all of a sudden there's three. And then my older brother goes, and now there's two. And then I get to the age of 17 and I leave. And Susanna, I didn't realize this till just maybe a year ago that I abandoned my little brother there in that house by himself. And I never thought to ask what happened to you, Jason. I never considered it once until I started hearing things started to come up with him and how he was behaving because of those traumas. And we reconciled all of that probably a year ago. And I said, brother, man, I'm sorry. I left you. It, it was every man for himself. We were just getting out of there. So, yeah. Can I, I feel quite emotional as he's saying that because, so I have my own story, but I found out when I left and I was very lucky because I was a ski racer and I managed to throw magic, truly magic and help of God managed to somehow like communism. And many years later, I have been told that for years, my dad used to go and walk the school grounds where I used to go to school at three and four o'clock in the morning, because I'm going to cry. Because when you escaped as a kid from communism, it meant that you never see your family. Again, things changed, obviously. But you saying that you left your brother behind is, I remember what I felt, and it was very powerful. I interviewed someone for my podcast who, who is a very successful person, but they were exchanged for food out of Russia. And it's the stories what, that you find out, and it's astonishing what people go through and the purpose also why I actually believe that it is so powerful to interview is because children, when they meet their parents and when they know their parents, they know bits and pieces of stories. Imagine the amount of people, Susanna, that we walk past in life, never having the privilege of knowing their story because we're so busy. We're like, ah, oh, they don't want to be bothered. I try and make it a point specifically with the homeless population in my town to engage on a level that most people, not that I'm better than anyone's worse by any means, but that's just something that's intriguing to me. Matter of fact, the other day, I appreciated the fact that my son left to go to work and he texted me. He said, dad, there's somebody around the corner that I think needs your help. And the fact that he knew that I would want to help and he texted me and said, hey, go check on this guy. So I just jumped out. I had a couple of people who here didn't say anything. I jumped out. I went around the corner and sure enough, there was a guy, he was my age, but he looked like he was 79 instead of 59. His name is Mike. He was laying there on the ground, and I just rolled my window down. Hey, bud, you okay? No, I'm not. I'm trying to get to Interfaith, which is a homeless assistance center here in my town. 
And I just said, hey, you need a ride. And it was a five, seven minute ride. And the conversation that we had in that five and seven minutes enriched me probably way more than it enriched him. Because I got the opportunity to hear how this guy ended up out here. And it's not always what we see, right? So we all have trauma. We all end up somewhere as a result of it. And, and it shapes us. We are now at the point where you joined the... The division of the Navy, the Marines, yeah. So can you t- take us through that? Because you actually were posted to some very interesting places. So found myself in Paris Island, South Carolina with my cousin, Johnny Moe, who we enlisted together on the blood buddy plan. He was 23, I was 17. We just went down and did it one day, spur of the moment, after I saw the recruiter in the lunchroom. And we were supposed to be together the whole time. I ended up really being successful in boot camp and he just made it through. So I got promoted meritoriously in boot camp and that gave me the opportunity to stay home for an extra 30 days on recruiter's duty where I got to go into the lunchroom of my high school and go around to different places and now talk to these kids about, hey, you might want to consider joining the Marine Corps as an option to work because me, maybe you don't want to work in the steel mills here in Canton. We got separated at that point. And then he went to Cherry Point, North Carolina, and I ended up in El Toro, California. And I checked in there and the guy said, you're not supposed to be here. This is really interesting how this all turned out. He said, you're not supposed to be here. You're supposed to be in Cherry Point. I said, what says right here in my orders, come to El Toro, California. He said, we don't go by that. We go by this code next to what right. says El Toro. This is one, two, two. Yours says one, two, three, which is North Carolina. So whoever it was that typed my orders, back then they typed them up on a typewriter. He put one digit off. He put a three instead of a two. Altered the entire course of my life. I would not be talking to you today had that guy been paying attention, typed in the right number. Think about that for a second. Guy, maybe just someone said, hey, Fred, we looked around, we hit a three instead of a two. And here's Clark Barton today, unapologetically successful with Susanna because of one digit. My wife wouldn't be in my life. My kids wouldn't be in my life. It would be a whole completely different set of circumstances. I could be a heavy guy right now. You never know. It's insane. That's interesting. It's just, it's amazing to me. So from there in El Toro, I went to Okinawa, Japan. And that's where I started to play rugby in the Marine Corps. Got to travel around playing rugby, Philippines, different places. That was a lot of fun. So I always learned how to manipulate the system, if you will. I, I was, I'm always a very observant guy. Okay, how can I not be like this guy and be doing what this guy's doing? Because that's no fun. I know there's better things to do. So the number one thing that I did to make me stand out is, one, I was in shape. And two, I always dressed like we were in uniforms. I wasn't sloppy. I was neat. I looked good. And when they were doing inspections, it's like, Bartram, you get the day off. Bartram, you get to drive the commanding officer around. Bartram, you get to do this. Bartram, now officers are wanting to hang out with me. And so I set myself apart. So that's when I started figuring out, okay, this is how the world works. If I stand out, then I'm going to get seen and I'm going to get opportunities. And that really set a course for my life. So then I ended up here at Camp Pendleton and got out and got into the gym business at that point. So can we go back to the dressing? Yes. (laughs) <laughs> you speak so close to my heart. <laughs> and what was it? Why did you feel that you needed to be top schmick 
always. I, I actually, Susanna, I learned that even <laughs> earlier. My dad, to this day, my fingernails are clean and trimmed and perfect. When my dad would pick us up, the first thing he made us do, I can see it like it was yesterday. We would open the door. We would have to stick our hands in like this. And my dad would look at our fingernails. If they were not cleaned and trimmed, he sent us back into the house. And we he bought a fingernail scrubber, like a little brush. And I remember I would scrub my fingernails and clip them. And then I would show them. And then he said, son, listen to me. You could be a bum on the streets. But if you take care of yourself, there will be opportunities for you in life. So when I worked at a hospital, we had to wear white uniforms. And I can remember we delivered food trays and guys would have stains on this white stuff. And I'm like, that looks gross. So in between shifts, like I would work in the morning, get an hour lunch break. I would go home and change, iron my stuff. And I came back looking amazing. And there was this older black woman we had by the name of Jean Smith. She called me in her office one day. She said, you continue to do what you do, young man. She was like 90. She yeah. was mean to everybody, but she loved me. And she was nice to me behind closed doors. She had to be how she was yeah. with everybody else in front. But it was because I dressed nice. I took pride in my uniform. Pride, you're right. So that carried into the Marine Corps. My closet right now is full of clothes that fit me. And this is what I try and teach men when they come to me. It's not just about walking on the treadmill. It's how you present yourself. Do you take care of your skin? Do you shave the back of your neck? Do you do all of these things that would make you attractive to the opposite sex or the same sex, whatever the hell you're into? I don't care, but look good. I still tuck my shoelaces in. To this day, my shoelaces will not hang out. It drives me nuts. <laughs> so can, I, can I, so you would know this obviously, but one of the first steps that they teach people if they want to be successful, when you get up, do your bed. Bet. That general spoke of that. So, yeah. And I just put on some nice jeans and a nice t-shirt and a nice pair of shoes because I want to feel good. I want to look good. My wife will often ask, why are you dressing up? It's not, I'm not dressing up. I just don't want to walk around gym clothes all day and feel like I'm still at the gym. Take a shower, shave, do my hair, put on something to make me smell good. And like, I'm more productive that way, in all honesty, than if I just sit around in gym clothes all day long can we explore this a little bit more i have to say i thought we will go more into the batman but this is so much fun this is that's why athletes you look at a football team these colleges that are recruiting great athletes they do four or five different routine color or uniform colorways different helmets different styles of uniform because those young kids want to look good when they're playing if you look good you play good and it goes in life the same way. If you dress good. Another thing I tell my guys all the time, too, is how are you showing up? Okay, so now that we got you dressing good and you're taking care of yourself, how do you show up everywhere you show up? What preparation do you do mentally before you open a door to a boardroom or a bedroom? Like, how are you popping in that place? And I talk to myself. I'm like, I'm Clark Bartram. I'm the best. I'm funny. I'm smart. I do it before this. I prepare. I don't just sit around and do nothing. I am psyching myself up. So I come in hot and ready to go. And there's not a wasted moment. If people go into meetings and they finally get into the rhythm and then the meeting's ending, it's too late. The guy that was ready to go or the gal that was ready to go from the beginning is going to win. The one that looks sharp is going to win. The one that's on point is going to win 
percent. There's no way around it. There is so that's no that. Yeah, go. I just and this is what I teach my guys. Real quick, one story. One of my guys changed his body, ripped, shredded, looked great. We do a Sunday call. He's like, Clark, I got to go quick. I'm going to church. So he pops on. I normally see him in gym clothes. Pops on in his church clothes. Church clothes. Shirt was baggy. It just looked like crap. I said, you are not going out of the house this way. That looks horrible. You need to get a shirt that fits. You have a tapered body and you got a shirt that looks like a bag on you. This makes no sense to me. So I'm going to teach you how to tuck it in like I learned in the Marine Corps. You pull it back. You pull it around until you're going to go buy a new shirt. You're buying at least one shirt that fits you good, period. I got an email from my tailor today in Hong Kong that I was at. And he's like, hey, I'm going to be in the United States. I'm like, where are you going to be? I want to go to him and have a couple more tailored shirts made. Because when you walk into a room with a body and a shirt that fits, people are looking at you going, who in the hell is that? <laughs> He's speaking to the woman who is a European at heart <laughs> and Parisian wardrobes and Italian because jackets are so beautifully tailored. It just it accentuates the body. Why work so hard on your body and have a great body covered up with horrible clothes? It just makes no sense. This is so good. Love it. <laughs> so here you are. We are back again. Out. And I believe also you knew that you wanted to stand out. So you stood out. What happens next? How did you, how out of all of this, then you suddenly become the Batman? That was an interesting thing. I'm sitting here, minding my business. I get a call from a really dear friend of mine by the name of Jason Ellis. He's a photographer, yeah. very well-known and good photographer. He said, hey, I was just, got a phone call from a guy. He's looking for someone to play Batman in a movie he's doing. And he described him. And it was you. And I said, what's the description? He said, well, he's got a deep voice. He's got blue eyes. He's got a square jaw. He's built. He doesn't need a thing. And he's six feet. And I'm like, I'm not six feet, bro. I'm like five, eight. Idiot. He said, I don't care. Just call the guy anyway. See what happens. Tom Cruise is five, seven. You just don't know. Just do it. I'm like, so we have this argument. He said, just do it. I said, all right, I'll do it. And me and Jason have brainstorm sessions all the time. And when we do, something always comes out of it, something positive, a great photo, a book, a new business, something. So anyway, I call this guy. I said, listen, bro, I'm 5'8". He said, I don't care. I love your voice. He said, do you have a website? I said, yeah. He goes to me. He said, in Hollywood, I need you up here tomorrow. So I shoot up there. There's a real funny story behind this, too. We probably don't have time to get into it. But I take my wife's car instead of mine. I go there. I'm sitting in this lobby. I see this guy coming down the steps. I loved his energy. I read for the part. There was another actor there. He was playing the Joker. I read for the part. This guy, the Joker, got scared because I got really into this scene that we did. I grabbed him. I threw him against the wall. Cream scum like you made me. And the guy was just like, whoa. <laughs> so anyway, I come back and I had to borrow $20 from the guy, the director, I had to borrow 20. I'm like, hey, are we done with this audition? He's like, yeah, why? I said, off script, off everything else. I need 20 bucks. I didn't bring my wallet. I'm running out of gas. I don't have any money. I brought my wife's car. I keep my wallet in my car. He's like reaching back in his pocket. Like, are you serious right now? And he pulls out $20 and I snatch it out of his hand. I said, I'll pay you back 40 tomorrow. I just need money to get home. About 10 years later, he said, I had to ask you a question. Did you really need 20 bucks? 
or was that an act just to get me to remember you? Because some actors will do that. I'm like, no, I needed $20 to get home. Otherwise, I was going to be stranded here. Because women don't like filling up cars with petrol. So what happened after the $20? You obviously so I get a call a couple, maybe a week later, and he says, hey, come to Huntington Beach, where he has his studio at. So I go to this studio. And this guy's an artist. He's an absolute artist. He drew all the storyboards. He did everything. He sculpted all the monsters in the Batman cowl and everything. But anyway, I walk into this studio. All the lights are out. And I open it up and there's two guys in the dark in the background. I'm like, this is weird. What the heck is going on? But lights were shining down on this Batman cowl. Just lights shining down on this thing. And I walk in and they're like, and one of the guys says to the other one, he goes, think it's him and he's yeah it's him he's the batman and they're like you got the part so they jump up they come out and i'm like what the heck man so now they take this cowl which was michael keaton's cowl that he wore and his head is much smaller than mine because they had to grease my hair down and pull this thing over and when they saw me in it they're like that is our batman right there for sure and that was it then we started auditioning or started practicing all these fight scenes and all this sort of stuff, did all my own stunts. And it, it did, it was amazing. It really was amazing experience. And to this day, I still get this wall over here is just full of Batman stuff. I have people that send me these little toys. Yes. They sculpted me all this right here. Oh, this, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, it's all over the place, drawings and, and all of that, but we were going to do another one when I got to be 50 and it seems so far away. He's like, you need to stay in shape till you're 50 because we're going to redo this again. And it just hasn't happened yet. But now I'm almost 60. Well, they'll do it when you're 60. That's next year, right? Yes. So how long did that whole Batman space take? Like the whole... It was a short film. It was a short. So it wasn't a feature length because the idea behind it was to get the director of Batman Dead End, the new Batman franchise was coming out. So the idea was to get him the job as the director on the new franchise coming up with Christian Bale. And they had me to be able to play the Batman. So Warner Brothers called me in, DC Comics called me in. I talked to them and, and they just weren't ready to bank on it. Nobody, someone without any sort of track record, a $100 million film or whatever that was for Batman, but in all honesty, the Batman fans always vote me above Christian Bale. I know Christian Bale copied my voice. My wife ran into Christian Bale one time at the Oscars. She was in line and she saw this guy in front of her. And then all of a sudden he turned around and starts talking to my wife. And she said she got starstruck, didn't know what to say. I'm like, you out of everybody on the planet had something to say to Christian Bale, you could have told him you copied my husband's voice in on the Batman film that you did. It's a compliment, and I think that's what it is. Yeah. Would you do, obviously not only Batman, you, would you go into movie space film industry? I would, but it's just not my specific goal in life. I've done feature films like this, this little thing back here is a movie that I did called Hunter Prey. It was a feature, did really well all around the world. I had three roles in that movie. One, I played this alien, I played another, and then I played the lead character in it called Orange Jericho. It was a fun science fiction thriller. We shot it in Mexico. 
in 117 degree heat. Wow. I held the whole thing together. It was just falling apart. They had to, food took three hours. They, from San Felipe, they drove food three hours down to us. It was all cold by the time we got there. It was quite the experience. <laughs> do you, would you encourage your children to do anything like that? They just don't have any desire at all. So I wouldn't waste my time encouraging them to do that. Both of my children are self-employed. They're both very entrepreneurial, don't want to work for anybody. So that's really where I encourage them to hone in those skills and learn how to never be a slave to an employer. What makes you happy? Making people happy. I love people. I love doing what I do, but I'm a very simple guy. What makes me happy just in a very simple sense is I go out on the football field and I throw the ball around I by myself. I don't need a lot of people around me. I love me some me. I love being alone. So yesterday I'm out on the basketball court. I got a football. I'm throwing it in the basketball hoop. I'm kicking it through the basketball hoop. I'm doing all these trick shots and just having fun, just enjoying myself. I love being outside. I love being a physical guy. So that makes me happy being physical, taking a walk, working out. And what I do for fun is I like to go to concerts. My wife and I go to a lot of concerts and listen to music. So that that makes me fun. I'm pretty eclectic in my style. I'm not a big country guy, but I listen to everything from 70s rock to bluegrass. Oddly enough, that I don't like traditional country, but I like bluegrass, jazz, hip hop, all of it. Our next concert that we bought tickets for is George Thorogood and the Destroyers, a good old cool. fashion rock and roll guy. Yeah, I think music is such an integral part of our life. I have my guys in my coaching program listen to a song by Bill Withers, Lovely Day. I say, start your day off with Lovely Day. And I make them listen to that song because it sets the tone for the day. It certainly beats watching the news. Yeah. So music is, I have a friend that doesn't listen to music and I cannot understand it. I'm like, how do you not listen to music? He's in the gym. He wants it quiet. I'm like, bro, crank the music up. No, I like it quiet. Yeah, you're weird. <laughs> if you would have a reflection, what is your, do you have any regrets? One of my biggest regrets, in all honesty, is I didn't play football like I should have. I told you when I was young, I had the problem with my knees and that stopped my football career. And I love football. I'm a great athlete. I have all of the attributes to rise to a level that was something that some people couldn't get to, I know. And it was a dream for my dad, for me to be a professional football player. And I stopped playing in high school. And that's a regret that I have. That's one thing. Like, I don't, I can't think of any other regret other than that. And I've never shared that before. You're the first person I've ever shared that with. That it really... And now, especially because I'm still very athletic and I'm still very good at, I can throw a football and hit a very small object from very far away. I do it all the time. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, if I can do that at 60, what was I capable of in, in the younger years, college and all of that? And it broke my dad's heart. It, it broke, now get me to cry, it broke my dad's heart, literally. I'm so sorry. It was his number one goal. I'll tell you the truth. My dad married my mom specifically to breed a great athlete. That's how my dad thought. My mom's a German woman, 5'10", tall, 
brothers all six three six four and he's like, i'm marrying that one right there i'm gonna have a tall athlete i ended up being five eight and not playing football just completely devastated him <laughs> but maybe your purpose was actually to help so many people around the way you do and that's what I tried to tell him before he died. I said, listen, dad, I know I didn't go down the path you wanted me to, but I'm still successful and I'm a good man. Matter of fact, I had the opportunity to sit next to my dad on his deathbed and have a final conversation with him and say, look, man, I don't cheat on my wife. I don't cheat on my taxes. I've raised two amazing kids. You can go on and die today because your legacy will live on through me. My fingernails are still clean. I told him that. And I kissed my dad on the lips every time I saw him, even though it was intermittent when we saw each other, he didn't show up all the time. Yeah. I kissed him on the lips. We had a very good relationship and I kissed him on his lips and walked out that day. And that was it. I never saw him again, but I felt so good that I had the opportunity to have closure with my dad. And that was one of the things I said, man, I'm sorry. I didn't do what you wanted me to do, but no, I'm a good, I'm a good ass man. But do you think that you would have done it for him or was it for you? I would have done it for me, but I was a shy kid in all honesty. I, I was painfully shy. And going fast forward from then till now, doing what I do now and doing the things that I've done, speaking in front of thousands of people, being on TV and all of the things that I've done in movies and, and modeling and being out in front of people all the time, I never, ever would have thought that I would have ended up being who I am today knowing who I was back then. And I'm here today, just like those orders that I got in the Marine Corps directed me to where I'm at today. If I'd have played football and went to college and played, I wouldn't be here right now. I would be somebody somewhere else, like this parallel universe idea, right? There's another version of me somewhere else. I always wonder around that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, to me, like there, is, there are so many versions of ourselves with the choices that we made What would have happened if Susanna wouldn't have escaped from a communist country? Where would you be today? You know what I mean? There's that version of you that exists somewhere. So there are all of these things and it's fascinating to me. I love this stuff. Absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much. And I'm very excited because you have succeeded. Even though you say you have a regret, what you've achieved is incredible. And how the journey and how life has actually moved you from one opportunity that you took and made something out of it you definitely have not lived an average life you have lived a full life which is so important and such an inspiration thank you so much i hope that we can reconnect again i would love to see what happens next yeah thank you appreciate it all the best thank you take care bye